Welcome to Making Bread, Making Money in the Modern Age. Now, here's your host, Matt Barkley. Welcome back to Making Bread, where we talk about all the new ways to make money using the technology of 2022. I'm your host, NFL quarterback, Matt Barkley. So many of today's investment opportunities feel new and frankly, I mean, a little scary. But our guest today is bringing back a classic, trading cards. Josh Luber is an incredibly successful entrepreneur who helped revolutionize the sneaker resale market. And now he's taking aim at the trading card industry. Baseball cards are making a comeback in a major way, and this guy is a big part of it. Josh, what's up, man? Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I love it. I am a, a big StockX fan, a sneakerhead. I don't know if I'm quite on your level yet. I have a box of trading cards, probably like everyone else in America. And I, I love your story, though, of how you started StockX and the idea. I saw a little segment, how ideas mean nothing. I know you probably said this in many interviews, but I, I want my listeners to hear this because it's great for all audiences. No, I mean, you know, I, ideas are worthless right? Execution is the only thing that matters. That's right. StockX is a perfect example of this. We didn't make this up. All we did, we copied the stock market. The stock market has been the most efficient form of commerce for 150 years. You know, we just executed it in a different way. We created a marketplace for sneakers for it. So as a entrepreneur, particularly as a young entrepreneur early on, you know, you get really worried that you're going to go tell someone about your idea and they're going to steal your idea and go take it and the whole thing. And like, in fact, the inverse is actually the truth, right? The only way to actually refine it, build it, find people to work with is to talk to everybody about it. And it's not about the idea. It's really about how you build it. That's so true. You've done an unbelievable job. Well done. Thanks, man. I got to ask, do you have a number one favorite piece of memorabilia that you've owned? Because I want to say own because you might have sold it at this point. Do you have a top one? Well, I mean, the word memorabilia is tough there. I have a lot of things. I have a lot of things. That counts. I'll tell you, my current most favorite thing that I have recently purchased is, and if I was at my house, I would show you, is I found an original 1985 Megatron in the same original packaging. So Transformers, you know, back then it was Megatron and Optimus Prime were the two big ones. Are you talking about Calvin Johnson, the NFL receiver, (laughs) or are you talking about the Transformers? Former. <laughs> Forgot who I'm talking to right now. Sorry. Sorry about that. Actually, in 85, Calvin Johnson was probably like uh, four years old. So would, that would be odd. <laughs> that would not have been his rookie card, no. <laughs> yes. Uh, Transformers. And what, what's extraordinary about this, first of all, it's in unbelievable condition and it's not graded. So they do, and well, this is a whole another deep dive here and all this, but there's grading for toys and, and G.I. Joe and He-Man and Transformers and all that. But I don't like buying graded toys because then you can't play with them. Right. And so I found an original Megatron 1985. The packaging is is like pristine. But here's the thing, that product, people don't remember because in the, all the new Transformers movies, Megatron was a gun. So it's a gun and it's, it looks like a real gun. I mean, could you imagine selling this product to kids today? What's a Transformer to? He transforms into the, the robot. So he goes from a gun into a robot. Optimus Prime was a, was a truck. 
and he transformed into the robot, right? Transformers all transformed into the robot. Yeah. And so I had this thing in my house and my nine-year-old daughter picked it up. was like, daddy, is this a real gun? I'm like, whoa. I'm like, first of all, you're not playing with this anymore. Second of all, it is absolutely not a real gun. But like just everything about this of like the difference in time and nostalgia. And I remember as a kid, I, my mother wouldn't let me have it because it looked like a gun. You know, anyway. So, and then I bought another one. So I have two of them. I have two Megatron Transformer 1985 guns. Mint condition. Mm-hmm. Besides your daughter playing with it. That's cool. I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I transform it all the time, you know, like in meetings. I'm like. That's a cool piece of memorabilia. Have you ever asked anyone for their autograph? When I was young, so I grew up in Philly, we used to go down. My father used to take me to Sixers games before the game started. This was back, I mean, you know, in the mid 80s where you could just walk down the court and in warm ups and we would go and ask people for autographs all the time. And the last auto I ever got was Sedale Threat who was like a backup shooting guard for the Sixers in like the era when like Barkley played. And that was it. And that that's the last time I've never like gone up to a yeah. famous person like on the street or anywhere. I kind of feel like that's, it's like, it's, it's weird to walk up to someone like bowling like, hey, like, can you sign something? So, yeah. It's for kids. Good job. That, that, that's a cool mm-hmm. experience though, back in, back in Philly. Mm-hmm. Well, nice. We'll talk more about memorabilia and the baseball card revolution. But before we get there, we have to take a look at some of this week's top headlines in a segment we call Whale Watching. All right, a little trivia mixed in here too. All right, a rare card signed by Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James, all right, is set for auction. And there are only five of this card in the world. One of them recently went for $320,000. So what three athletes across all sports, all eras, would make up your dream autographed card. Mm, Yes. So I'm very aware of the high demand for the triple auto LeBron Kobe Jordan. Get your eyes on it. By the way, what's extraordinary about how much demand is for that, if you have a fourth player on any of that, so I've seen one that's got Dr. J, I've seen one that has Garnett. It's about 300 grand if you have all three of them. If you add a fourth player, it actually decreases the value by like 60%, like 80%. I could have bought the, the one with KG for 60 grand and the three that so, so. Anyway, so for me, it's probably going to be uh, Mo Cheeks, Randall Cunningham, and Reggie Miller. Good list. That's a good list. I like it. Looking for the Trinity, not a fourth, just three to keep the value high. Mm-hmm. In other news, we get a first look at the South Park Adidas sneakers. All right, Adidas dropped a line of six new South Park-inspired sneakers. If you could design a line of shoes based on any TV show ever, where are you going with? West Wing. Would that, that, would that be a business? The West Wing. Shoe? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, it's going to be sneakers. It, they're gonna, it's going to be a horrible design. It's going to be like a, a, a 90s suit design. But I feel like everything I've learned in life, I learned from the West Wing. And there's a group of many people like me that are equally as passionate about the West Wing. And my whole life, all I've ever wanted to do is name a company Zero Cool after the movie Hackers. And I did. And so what's up next is the West Wing. I can't wait to see how you integrate that into <laughs> company mm-hmm. name or, or even what the company is, because that'll point right to the White House. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll stay tuned for that. Hidden Valley, the salad dressing company, right? they created a diamond ring made from ranch dressing. According to the article, they heated up some ranch seasoning to 2,500 degrees, then crushed the output under 400 tons of pressure. It took five months 
to create and it sold on eBay for $12,500. How would your wife have reacted if you had proposed with a ring made out of salad dressing? Well, my wife would have um, cared more that I was proposing and, and I don't think she would have cared what the ring was made out of. However, I guess the first thing anyone would do is lick it, right? Is it hard? It's got to be hard. You got it. Like, is it, it taste like ranch? Does it have an aftertaste or does the... I don't know. Or does the cooking process get rid of the ranch? That's good. I got to tell you, that's good marketing for 12 grand from a business standpoint. Like, I mean, I love that your wife's, your wife's in it for the love, not for the, the diamond or the ranch ring. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. You got, you got it made. Mm-hmm. Drake recently got involved in the card craze as he spent an estimated 200 grand on an NBA flawless boxes looking for some super rare cards. What's the most you've ever spent on cards on a box? Mm, more than that. Well, not on an open box. So I buy a lot of cards. I buy cards every single day. I've definitely paid more than that for uh, single cards, but the most I've ever paid for an unopened case is um, 2012 Prism. I think I paid a little over 100 grand for the case, which is, it's probably worth maybe 150 grand right now. It's, I mean, it's in that range. But that was the first year of Prism, which is sort of the most notable basketball brand for trading cards right now. And it's got two years of rookies. So it's got like Kawhi, Anthony Davis, Kyrie, Clay Thompson. So there's a lot of good rookies in, in that set. Nice. And uh, lastly, despite poor projections, Nike actually released a strong financial report for the third fiscal quarter and their shares went up 4%. Their stock had taken quite a hit this year, so it was a nice rebound. I know you're not in the shoe world as much anymore, although you probably pay attention. But do you think this is a sign of brighter times ahead for Nike? Oh, long, long, long on Nike. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, the- It's hard to stop that train. Yeah. I mean, they're so good at so much. Yeah. I would not bet against Nike on, on anything. Any, any blips is like, come on, it's Nike. Swoosh. Send it. Yeah. Love it. All right, let's get down and dirty now into your passions. So many things that we talk about on this show, uh, they sound imaginary. They have, you know, a, a digital signal to them, whether it's NFTs, cryptos, there's something really physical. They can't hold them in your hand, but you decided to go a little different way, a little different direction with trading cards. Can you expand on that? We all grew up in the same era. And we all collected cards and they all sat in our parents' basements for the last 20 years. Right. And now we get to all do it again. And like, that's the whole thing. I mean, when I was 10 years old, the only two things I cared about were sneakers and trading cards. Yes. And I got to do one and now I get to do the other. But what's interesting about trading cards is, well, there's a whole lot. But to this point, trading cards being this physical relic, trading cards are a historical record. They tell a story of a people and a time and a place. And Ordinarily, that's been the story of the 2014 NFL season or, or whatever it is, but it can also be the story of you know a, a TV show or it can be a story of a group of, of artists. And the opportunity to really expand where trading cards have been and, and where they go around that idea, around that idea of, of historical records and fandom is extraordinary because uh, we've all become collectors. I mean, we just talked about like six things I collect other than cards on, on you know, the lead up to this. So it's a jumping off point to, to all of that as trading cards become more integrated into culture. And it seems like things always come full circle, right? And, and you, again, you had success in the fashion industry 
where what's old becomes new again and as new generations catch on. I mean, what is it about not just our generation, but I guess society and wanting to bring back classics? Is that just a generational gap? I mean, with physical cards and the resurgence of baseball cards and all of the merch. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? What is it? Yeah. Well, you hit two things there, but our generation, I think, is much different than our parents' generation in that, you know, we grew up in the heart and you tease this right. We grew up in the heart of the, of the Nike marketing era, right? We grew up in this time where consumer goods were transforming from like, oh, you know, you buy a pair of shoes to play basketball. And like my father grew up in there and all of a sudden Nike marketing and, and, and Air Jordan and, and Mr. Robinson's neighborhood and, and I'm not a role model and like all the things that left such an impression from a just a, a cultural aspect of it of like, man, like these products mean so much more. And then, you know, I think People by nature are collectors, hoarders, and you get two camps. You get some people that are very much like, no, I'm good. You know, that's not for me. And then everyone else is like almost inherently like this because of, I, I don't know, we grew up as hunters and gatherers, you know, millennia ago. <laughs> Just get them all. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're in a place where like the access to these products and then as our generation also was the first one to hit the internet right as we were making money. Mm -hmm. So now, and then, you know, since then, it's obviously continued to expand. So I just think we have a different relationship with products that are the generation before looks at it almost like, like a waste of money and, and trivial. And then for us, it's much more than that. And it becomes much more cultural, you know, identity. And then we, we could talk about the, the new generation and the young, you know, younger kids, how they view that. And, and maybe it's different and maybe it's digital and maybe that's the way it moves. But for us, like those things are important. Those things are important. Yeah, it seems like we're almost putting a price tag now on nostalgia. And yeah. there's a quantitative measure to... A, the nostalgia of a Megatron 1985 Transformer is about 450 bucks on eBay. So Right, or Pokemon cards that were all crumpled up in, you know, in the corner of your closet or whatever. Now that brings back so many memories of trading totally. those and hustling to try to get a Charizard or whatever it was. And now there's a full-on marketplace uh, for those. Yeah. A thousand percent, right? Yeah. So you co-founded StockX, mm -hmm. wildly successful. What made you want to transition or, or why'd you leave? It takes a minute. It takes way more than a minute. It, it takes a, a while to realize that just because you started the company doesn't mean that you can't leave. And I was one of the three co-founders at StockX, but I never was the majority owner. One of my partners was Dan Gilbert, who's the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers and Quicken Loans. Yep. And so, you know, as the company grew and and it was very clear that the company was going to pivot towards whether going public or, you know, just that level of scale, it was pretty clear that I didn't want to be the CEO of a public company. And so I chose to replace myself as CEO and, and was working towards the next phase of that company when I discovered trading cards and when those two passions of startup and, and the original vision of StockX merged with the trading card industry and what was going on there. And interestingly enough, the business that I'm co-founded now, this is a continuation. This is actually a more precise continuation of the original vision of StockX. So in a lot of ways, I'm doing the exact same thing. It's with a different company, different product, but it's the same vision and the same idea. And so that's like kind of the important thing as an entrepreneur is that through line of what that vision is. And we can go deep on that if you want. But like in a lot of ways, I'm doing more of what I've always been doing, even though I'm with a different company. Yeah. So you're at Zero Cool, which I do want to talk about, but you're also the chief vision officer at Fanatics. And 
think we've all known fanatics for buying a jersey, for buying, you know, alumni gear for your your favorite team. But as the vision officer, I mean, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's the vision? And I mean, what excites you about the future of trading cards with a monster like fanatics? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just to clarify slightly. So I'm the chief vision officer at Fanatics Collectibles, which is a uh, majority owned subsidiary of Fanatics, but it's a separate company. And Fanatics Collectibles is the company that I co-founded with Fanatics with the leagues and players associations. And we acquired the rights to make MLB and NFL and NBA trading cards. And then we launched Zero Cool, which is the trading card brand for culture. So kind of think of it as like four sports, baseball, basketball, football, culture. Right. This business and the chief vision officer of Flatnax Collectibles, first of all, I'm a huge Simon Sinek fan, and he kind of believes that chief vision officer is the more uh, apropos title for CEO. And I'm a big believer in that as well. Over the years, I've kind of learned that there's two different functions there and the vision side, the strategy of, of how does this business move forward, that's the stuff that that is more my speed. But it is about the vision, the, the strategy for all of this is how do we grow the industry? How do we take an industry that has been around for since the 1800s and in the last five years has grown tremendously? The whole industry is maybe five, six, seven X what it was six years ago, but now bring in technology and create a marketing company, create a marketing industry that didn't exist before. And so it's really fun to figure out how we evolve that, you know, in a place where you have this like everything about modern e-commerce at our fingertips and data and everything else, but this industry that to no fault of its own, it has none of that. And so it's a really interesting place to be and to partner with Fanatics to do it, who's got, you know, 80, 90 million sports fans and, and all the data and all the expertise and, and resources in the world to do that is, is a pretty great partner. Yeah, it seems like a great opportunity to, to kind of upend a, a market that hasn't really changed a whole lot, right, in, in the last decade or last couple of years. So nope. we also saw the Fanatics acquiring Tops, which was kind of my childhood baseball experience and collectors around. I mean, dominated that industry for, for decades. What is it about that acquisition that's an important part of you guys' plan moving forward? So two things. When the license acquisitions were announced, it should be noted that we acquired licenses when the current licenses expire. And so for Major League Baseball uh, and Tops, who held the license before, had we not acquired Tops, our license would have kicked in in two years. So acquiring tops allows us to start working immediately. Otherwise, we would have been on the sideline for baseball for a couple of years. But second, and frankly, more important, is the brand. Tops is baseball. Tops has made baseball cards since 1952. From the very first conversation that Michael and I had with the both on the, the league side and the player side, both parties said, we want to keep the brand. We like tops makes baseball cards. And so, you know, that was an important part of it as well, that there will never be a year that skips the tops doesn't make baseball cards in our minds. So. That's beautiful. And zero cool. Is there an integration with your role at Fanatics at all? Or are they completely separate entities? Or is there going to be overlap? No, no, they're, they're actually, it's the same. So it interestingly, the short version of, of how this played out was I left StockX to do two things, to create Zero Cool, to create a trading card brand for culture, and to try to move into the primary market of trading cards, acquire the licenses, and do that. Partnered with Michael and Fanatics to go after licenses. It took about nine, 10 months. 
And so while we were doing that, we launched Zero Cool. And the idea was if we couldn't acquire the licenses, if that didn't work out, I would just keep running Zero Cool and that'd be the business. But we did. And so then we merged them together. So Zero Cool and Tops are the two brands under Fanatics Collectibles, right? Fanatics Collectibles is the company. The two brands today are Tops and Zero Cool. There may be more brands in the future, but today those are the two brands. And then the vision man comes into play and we have all sorts of different avenues to make trading cards out of what we create and how we sell them then is when you get the really you know real fun part right so the first drop on zero cool though was was the v friends project which i've followed gary for a while now and he's been involved with digital currencies and seems like nfts from the start uh he's always on the edge and always bouncing off the walls Mm-hmm. But yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk's NFT release is converting digital art to physical art, which is kind of the opposite of what you know JPEGs are as normal NFT profile pic or whatever. But is that conversion from digital art to physical art going to be a key component beyond just the VFriends release? Well, it's interesting to focus on that part of it because obviously the inverse, like you said, is the entire conversation, not the entire, a huge part of the conversation around nfts for us it's about the ip the partnership the the brand the friends as you know even more so than the art itself zero cool is a trading card company for culture for all aspects of culture historically there have been trading cards for more traditional ip tv and movies but this is about whether we do trading card sets for musicians and artists and fashion designers and philanthropists and politicians and business people and and dentists, like whatever, every like walk of life, there's a potential opportunity there because that's part of our culture, except for sports, which is already very well covered through the others. Right. And NFTs are a very important part of our culture right now. It's a huge topic, very polarizing. People have different opinions of it and we'll see where it goes. But right now it's a very important part of culture. So for us, it was really a perfect product to launch Zero Cool the brand with because it's saying, hey, it'd be easy to launch this with a, a, a Marvel you know, product or, or something that, it, or Star Wars or something that is much more traditional people are used to seeing. But it's like, no, no, this is different. This is about all aspects of culture, NFTs being one of them. And by the way, the next Zero Cool release is going to feel much more traditional. It's actually with a movie. So when we see that, then you know, it, it'll look a whole lot different than an NFT release. And those are going to be strictly trading cards that will be through zero cool not merch or nothing like StockX where it's a digital are you going to have products in part of like a a movie release or something like that so you're the first person that has asked that question and sort of like seen that very uh slim venn diagram overlap there's a whole other chunk to capitalize yeah mhm look first and foremost we're a physical trading card company period yeah but there will be digital cards. There will be cards that take the form of NFTs. That's easy. But there's no reason why there wouldn't necessarily also be merch and other products that are related to it, if it makes sense for the product, for those brands, et cetera. If we're doing trading cards with a streetwear brand, then uh, maybe there's a streetwear capsule that goes along with it as well, right? Like it's not, this is about all aspects of culture. And so it's okay. It doesn't have to be you know, as narrow as, as people view trading cards today. Do you guys have full control over the releases or have you considered opening it up as a marketplace for creators to come in and release their own like drops or their own packages? Yeah. So that's an interesting sort of 
potential evolution of this. You know, today it's it, we're a primary trading card manufacturer. Right. As right. we just hit on, you know, there may be other products as well that we also create. But the natural convergence of all e-commerce is that primary and secondary markets start to converge. I mean, that's what StockX it was about. And certainly, you know, we're seeing this in, in other places. You're seeing NFT projects that like Mebits, when Mebits released, it released on Larva Lab site, and then there was a Mebit marketplace attached to it so people can buy and sell it in the same place. So we don't do this today, Zero Cool, neither Zero Cool nor Tops nor any products under Fanatics Collectibles do that. But is it a possibility? Sure. I mean, I think that it's just the natural evolution for all of e-commerce. And so it's a question of who you do it, how, with whom, and when. In addition to the specifics of trading cards, what are your thoughts on digital collectibles like Top Shot? Uh, is, is there enough room in this space for everything to kind of coexist? Or do you think there'll be a, a top dog to edge everything out? NFTs are real, yeah, right? Collect digital collectibles are real, like absolutely will be part of our lives for a long time to come. I think there's a tremendous amount of shakeout to happen and evolution in terms of how and, and what it looks like. We think that physical trading cards become a much smaller, but perhaps maybe more important part of the overall landscape because it's harder. It's easy to create digital collectibles relative to creating physical products, right? It only becomes easier from a technology standpoint. Eventually, it'll be self-serve. Eventually, anybody that wants can go on a website and, and create their own NFT project in the same way that you can create your own you know, website like on Wix or, or something like that. But what that leads to is it leads to just a lot more supply on that side. And so then for all that to, to sort itself out, it's one of the reasons that we really like physical cards, even though it's very clear that the future is digital, if that makes sense. But that's kind of how, how we look at it. You're kind of touching on this, but I want to hear a complete sentence. All right. Fanatics, trading cards <laughs> and collectibles are, are better than digital cards because um, what would make me choose that over a box at Target? There are different products for different consumers. Let's say that. And in 40 years, maybe there's no physical cards being printed anymore, right? Maybe culture and the people that care about trading cards in that form, it's all the kids that are being born today that are the ones that are driving that industry and, and, and it looks different, right? But you have this generation in the middle that cares about having those physical items and even with regard to the, the options around your physical cards today. So trading cards have become so valuable. There are businesses that are storage facilities, vaults for cards, right? Yeah. You can send your card off to PWCC as an example of one of the leading ones. And they will store your cards. You have digital access to it, et cetera. I don't want my cards going anywhere. I like to have them and, and hold them and, and, and be able to show them to people. And, and you know, even though... You know, maybe it's smarter from an insurance standpoint and everything else to have them, you know, there. At So it's a tough question. I mean, you can go through the talking points on cards versus digital, but it's really about different customer segments and, and who likes what and how. And right now, go to a card show, man. Like there's so, there's so much energy. It's so much fun going to a card show. Like the flip side of it is it did the digital version of that is just looks like eBay. It's great. You can buy it, spend a lot of money, you can sell a lot of stuff. Yeah, or physically opening a pack and like that surprise that you get. I mean, that's absolutely it can't really be replicated. By the way, a, you can you can digital packs. Yeah, but the excitement is not quite the same. The feeling of it? Mm, no. The feeling of like 
when you open that pack and you know like right where the seam is of like you know you hit the seam the right way so it opens exactly right so you know that it's not going to be damaged when you open it right or you miss it slightly and you're like okay now i gotta like jimmy like all the just the whole and then the smell the smell of like cards as they come out of the pack i mean in the old days packs came with that stale rock hard stick of bubble gum right is, yeah, yeah is there a way to bring that back or <laughs> make something similar so interestingly you can go buy a box of cards from 1985 and the gum's still in there and all the time somebody always dares somebody and somebody always eats it right <laughs> you know someone will put a piece of gum in their mouth from 1963 calcified sugar just yeah yeah but one, it would ruin the card because you you would end up staining the back of the card the gum was on, right? So that was horrible, particularly if all of a sudden, you know, you pull a monster card, you got like a, you know, I don't know, like a, a George Brett rookie card, and then there's a piece of gum stuck <laughs> to the back of it. But also it just, now you're putting, through, I, I forget what the rules are, but there was some sort of like FDA rules and about having pro, like food and stuff. And so that, that they got rid of it. But I think there's something about the nostalgia of it and it's like, I don't know, maybe we, I don't know, maybe we bring back the gum from the cards itself. Find whoever made that, like, rock hard gum, right? At the end of the day, it was an incentive. It was an incentive for kids to go get a pack of cards because they knew they were going to get gum with it. It used to be the inverse, right? Yeah. It used to be like candy and you'd get a card with it, <laughs> yeah. right? You're selling the candy. Tops, by the way, when we acquired Tops, we just acquired the card company. They were still a candy company. They still made all that candy up until literally January 1st of this year. And we were like, no, thanks. We just want the cards. You guys can keep your candy. So that is wild. Oh, man. Well, we're going to transition into a little uh, game variety segment. All right. You've answered a lot of questions and we'll have a little more trivia backed in here. Let's do it. The trading card industry has produced uh, many iconic products over the years, but I want to test your knowledge a little bit on some of the most famous and infamous cards that we have seen. Seven questions. You need four right answers to win. All right. We ready? All right. Let's do it. This two-sport athlete, that narrows it down. This two-sport athlete had a famous card in 1990 where he was wearing football pads and holding a baseball bat over his shoulders. Bo Jackson. Easy. One for one. I had that poster in my room too. The this the ball player poster. I used to I mean that's a that's a badass poster. I mean I think we've all seen that. Uh, all right. Easy start here, one for one. Let's see what we got next. Yep. There was a certain card that was in almost every sold set in every sport, and it can be worth between two hundred and four hundred bucks today, even though it didn't have a single player on it. What card am I talking about? Wait, say that again? There was a, a card in every set. In every sport. And still, they can be worth between about 200 and 400 bucks, but it didn't have a single player on it. You know what card it is? The checklist. The checklist. Yeah. Simple enough. One for two. That was a yeah. odd, odd question. Yes. I had to throw you off. You were on a roll. Yeah. This early 1900s baseball player is the subject of the most expensive card ever due to its limited production. Who is it? Honus Wagner. The Honus Wagner. The icon. This Lakers legend is shown executing his legendary skyhook on a 1986 Fleer stickers release that it's worth about 12000 or so today. Who is it? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Bang. We're on a roll. Back on track. Beckett 
the most prominent trading card resource out there, described a 1998 Peyton Manning rookie card as, quote, a pivotal card that forever changed the way we collect. What special feature does this card contain that was unheard of at the time? Were you talking about the 24 karat gold? It's even simpler than that. Is it the, the autograph, the contender's autograph? That's it. It's the autograph. Yeah. That was kind of unique at the time and changed the game. Do you still seek out autograph cards over 10 cards? So interestingly, I don't collect a lot of autograph cards. Partly, I think it's because when we grew up, that was like a no-no, right? Because this was before trading card companies started putting autos in packs, which is what Beckett's referring to there with the Peyton, right. which is you know, a monster rookie card with, a, with an auto on it that was created that way. When we grew up, it was like, oh, you know, you might take your card and, and try to have, you know, a player sign it, but it would make the value worth less because, first of all, there was no way to authenticate it. And a lot of time people would have it. Like, I actually have an Ozzy Smith 1979 Tops rookie card that I had Ozzy Smith sign at a card show when I was probably eight. And he signed it with a ballpoint pen, which completely ruins the value of it. And also, there was no way to validate that, that was Ozzy Smith's signature. But so you kind of learned back then not to have players sign it. So I think there's still still a little bit of that in me. But even today, they're actually worth less. So take like Panini Prism. If you have a Zion, let's take Luca. If you have a Luca rookie card and a, a Panini Prism, and you have the exact same Luca, but it's the autograph version, it's worth less as the autograph version than the non-autograph version. It's odd, right? Because it was touched and handled. No, because just because people want the the base card, they want the the autograph one is worth more than maybe like a different, you know, an insert one or whatever. But just in the hierarchy, that like that that core one is worth like I'll even tell a perfect example. There's a, a Trey Young 2018 Prism black one of one. So this is like his best rookie card, the rarest one, the one of one version. The autograph version sold Saturday night for uh, $256,000. I know for a fact, and I know where the who has the base one, the non-autograph version, and I think it's probably worth about $1.1, $1.2 million. So this is like the same cards, the Trey Young, Black, Prism, 101. 75% knockoff? Yeah. Sheesh. I would look at it the other way, right? The, oh, yeah, the, 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 yeah. The base is worth, yeah, the base is worth more. By the way, I mean, the autograph is still a massive card. I mean, it literally sold for $256,000. And it's an amazing card, but people value the the non-auto more, which is which is weird, right? But that's just that's how it is. All right. Well, Peyton Manning's autograph will count that as a correct answer mm -hmm. for Josh. All right. Not all cards are sports cards. Okay. One of the biggest hits of the '90s was the original Pokemon card game. A recent article on NintendoLife.com ranked the top ten most popular Pokemon characters from that original game. All right. I'll give you thirty seconds. Name seven of them. Well, Charizard's got to be one. Pikachu's in there. Uh, me too. Me, me, is, me that, too. is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Me too. Uh, Squirtle, Bulbazar, and I don't even collect Pokemon. This is all just this is cards. Impressive. I don't know the others. Yeah, that those five. I don't know what else. I think that was five. Was that what did I say? Seven. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it to you because I was stuck at Charizard Pikachu and that was impressive. Right. We'll give you a correct answer on that. I think we had Snorlax. Did you say Bulbasaur? 
don't know, Squirtle. Yeah, I said Bulbasaur. Squirtle. Squirtle. Anyway, that takes it back. to. So I never, I'm like the generation right before that. I never collected Pokemon cards, but I just know those cards just from seeing them pop up at auctions. And I actually only own two Pokemon cards. I own, there's two different Pikachu, like rookie cards. I bought one each basically for my kids at some point because they like Pokemon and at some point maybe they'll care about it. So I sort of bought one Pikachu each for them and put it away. Um, and I just think Pikachu has better branding than Charizard. Like I think Pikachu's like long-term, but Charizard's worth way more. The Charizard rookie is worth yeah. a ton. And that's the one that, that what's his name? Logan Paul wore in the ring. And was that the hologram one? Yeah. 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 Well, that's also the thing is from just from a manufacturing standpoint, the Charizard was a, a holographic rookie and uh, Pikachu is not. So I think mm-hmm. that's part of it as well. All right, last question. You can buy a Matt Barkley Tops rookie card, all right, mint condition on eBay right now. Is the price of that card higher or lower than $10? Uh, is it graded a PSA 10 or you're just saying it's in good, perfect condition? Hypothetically, it is. <laughs> It's more than ten dollars if it's a, if it's graded a PSA ten. If it, if it's not if it's just a regular card that I found in my closet that my kid had, uh-huh. we'll give it we'll give it five bucks. Uh. We'll count that as a correct answer. I think you were. Have you gone and tried to find your like rare cards? I have like jersey cards from like the original Panini shoot I did as a rookie. That's awesome. And I don't even they're probably. Worth. I mean, I mean, I'm holding on to them. All right. Maybe one day when something goes down, I'll have them. But what's more fun is to go find the really rare ones, like the one of one that run off. So I have a a friend who plays in the league now, and I'll I won't share his name. He plays in the NBA right now, and frankly, I think his cards should be worth more than they are. But anytime I see like one of the really rare, like a, like number to five, number like a one of one, and all that, like I'll send. I'm like, man, you got to buy this. I'm like, it's just just to have the the super rare ones. Like, I just, you know, I just think it's cool. Buy up my whole market and then send it to the moon. It's a good plan. Well, thanks a bunch, Josh, uh, for joining me today and talking trading cards and collectibles. Uh, If you guys enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and leave a review or subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Barkley, and this has been Making Bread.